those speculations. They may be valid speculations. But the fact is, it happens. And it happens statistically, more seriously, more epidemically with men than with women, though it does, of course, happen with women as well. It is an epidemic problem. It's an epidemic problem in our culture right now. And we need to be aware of it. Uh, Just take a look at some of these quotes that I have on the disturbing reality of pornography, one aspect of this epidemic. We'll just run through some of these pretty quickly, and I can give you the references for this. The estimates of the revenue from pornography are anywhere between $3 and $12 billion per year. That's more than all the sports franchises combined made on pornography. Uh, In 2003, there were 1.3 million pornographic websites, 260 million pages. The adult DVD video rentals, 2005, almost 1 billion. Just keep on scrolling through these. Uh, hotel viewership for adult films. You know, those things you see on the TV, you can, you can rent if you desire. Hopefully you don't. Uh, 55%. Unique worldwide users visiting adult websites monthly, 72 million. Number of hardcore pornography titles released in 2005, 13,588 adults admitting to Internet sexual addiction. So it's a regular uh, habit that they have. 10% of all adults, uh, 28% of the 10 are women, so 2.8% total of those are women involved in Internet sexual addiction of various kinds. More than 70% of men, 70% of men, that's almost three-quarters, from 18 to 34, visit a pornographic site in a typical month. Almost three-quarters of men. More than 20,000 images of child pornography online, posted online every week. Uh, 2003 meeting of the American Academy of uh, Matrimonial Lawyers. Two-thirds of the 350 divorce lawyers who attended said Internet played a significant role in divorces. And a half of those Cases were related to Internet pornography. And then the last sentence, pornography had an almost non-existent role in divorce just seven or eight years ago, before the Internet. Shocking. Sad. 57% of pastors uh, say it's the most damaging issue to their congregation. 47% of families said pornography is a problem in their home. Nine out of ten children aged between the ages of eight and 16 have viewed pornography on the Internet in most cases, unintentionally at such a young age. The average age of first exposure, 11 years old. The largest consumer, 12 to 17-year-olds. Next. Every second, $3,000 is being spent on pornography, 3,000 plus. Every second, 28,000 plus users are viewing pornography. Every second, 372 search. Internet users are... Uh, typing adult terms into search engines. Every 39 minutes, a new pornographic video being created in the United States. The industry is larger than all these major industries combined. In a study of convicted child molesters, 77% of those who molested boys said they were regular users of pornography. 87% of those who molested girls said they were regular users. And Mary Ann Layden from University of Pennsylvania says, pornography addicts have a more difficult time recovering from their addiction than cocaine addicts. Shocking and sad statistics. 
Do you think Jesus' teaching is relevant to us? I think so. This is an issue. This is a problem. And it's becoming a problem at an increasing rate. It is a problem with women as well. There are women increasingly involved in viewing pornography. Sadly, this is growing. But also there's another aspect here that I think women have to think about. That though most of the time they are, not, they are innocent, in a sense, victims of others looking to lust, uh, many times that's the case. There's no provocation. It's interesting in, in the passage when Jesus says, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent can also be translated, everyone who looks at a woman to lust with her. That there is this aspect of lusting, that there's a cat and mouse game of lusting with a woman. That the man looks and lusts and commits adultery in his heart, but in some cases the woman plays cat and mouse. Women can be provocative at times. Now, in no way am I laying this at the feet of women at all. Though men are the greatest perpetrators of this sin. But we live in this culture, and we as fallen human beings have been so affected by this reality that we may be unconscious, willing participants in this game of cat and mouse. Just think about it. How many, how much of the entertainment and fashion industry is really geared around exploiting this weakness that is predominant among men. Ever seen a movie? It's a great movie, and all of a sudden there's a sex scene in the movie? Or there, there's something like that, and you think, what is that doing here? They're selling the movie. And, and movies, TV shows, commercials, and fashion. The, the weakness of men in particular to look to lust is exploited. And there's a cat and mouse game that's set up often where women, the styles that are out there, it's hard to find styles that are modest. Uh, I mean, I don't shop for women's clothes much, but I know in talking with my wife and, and looking, it's hard to find stuff with a respectable neckline and things like that and respectable midriff line. It's the, the fashions have just gone in the direction of being provocative. It's, it's there. And if we aren't conscious of it, if we don't actively think about this passage, and think about the call as God's people to have nothing to do with this at all. To look to Him and to live pure. To enjoy sex within its proper context and avoid all other contexts. If we don't think about it, we can just kind of go along with the flow. Buy the clothes. And, and ladies, I, I, I would venture to guess that none of you here in any way would ever intend to be provocative. But we live in this culture that is just ingrained there. And if we're not thoughtful, we'll find ourselves participating in this in our culture. Sadly, this weakness is exploited to great gain, to great economic gain, great spiritual, relational, social loss. And men and women need to be aware of it. Sexual desire is powerful stuff. It's powerful stuff. And it's like fire. It's like fire. Fire is wonderful when it's on your stove top. You can cook with it. You can make stuff to eat. It's great when it's in your furnace, particularly on a morning like this, heating your house. It's beautiful in the fireplace. It's enjoyable. 
It has its right place. And in its right place, it's a great blessing. The Bible is never, never negative about sex in its proper context. Matter of fact, it's very positive. Read the Song of Solomon, do a study, and you'll see, and elsewhere as well. The problem is when it's outside of the context. When it's not in the fireplace, fire is not a good thing, is it? Do you want to have a fire in your living room? No. It'll burn your house down. Fire in the wrong place is very destructive. Similarly, sex in the wrong place is very destructive. And our culture and our sinful nature will drive to have sex in the wrong place. And the entertainment and fashion industry has tapped into the power of fire, and they're making lots of money. And if we are not thoughtful, we will follow along like the Pied Piper's children, mesmerized by our culture, not recognizing the destruction that we're reaping and will reap. So this sin is serious. It's a matter of the heart. It affects us all. We are all, I I don't think any of us should go out of here thinking we are not tarnished and affected in some way, even if it's a slight degree, by this. And there are some of us, even in a group this small, that it's more than tarnishing. You are shackled by it. You are in the mud and the mire, and you know it. And Jesus brings this truth for you to warn us, and to rescue us as well. So adultery is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the intent. It's looking to lust. Adultery is rewarded with hell. Jesus teaches that. He implies it here. He doesn't go into a teaching on hell in this passage, but he says some shocking things, does he not? If your right eye causes you to sin, Tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Now, he's teaching this to disciples. He's teaching this to his followers. He's teaching this truth to people that have have turned from their sins to follow Jesus, to trust in Christ. Ultimately, to trust in him for forgiveness and new life and his death and resurrection. So these are his followers. These are Christians, though they wouldn't have been known by that term at the time. These are Christians, and yet he's saying... Guys, this stuff is so serious that you have to be so ruthless to cut your eye out. We'll talk about that later. Gouge out your eye, throw it away, for it's better to lose one of your members, better to lose your eye, than your whole body to go into hell. It's better to to lose an eye now and and enter into heaven and be with God and, and live with God than to go to hell with your whole body. And so the implication is Christians can go to hell. Right? I think he's clear. He's clear here. It's not a hypothetical teaching. It's a real danger. Now, I think we need to talk about it a little bit, though, so that we understand this, because we can, we can misunderstand this. But this is clear. Jesus says it here. Uh, there's other warnings like this in Scripture. Two Christians. Uh, we have a couple of verses. 1 Corinthians 6. Paul warns the Corinthians. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Guys, he's saying to the Corinthians, don't be deceived. 
These sort of people who live these sort of lifestyles will not enter into God's presence. It's a, a, a ridiculous contradiction to think that they would. And then in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Some pretty stark warnings in Scripture. So I think Christians need to understand that this warning is for them. But, but Paul, what are you saying? You're confusing me. Well, let's, let me try to answer as clearly and concisely as I can. Two things. First off, Scripture is very clear. Very clear. But those that belong to Jesus, John 10, those that belong to him that he has in his hands, no one can snatch them out of his hand. No one can. The Father's given them to Jesus, given his people. And if you are a Christian, you've turned from your sins, you've trusted in Christ, you're finding your life in him, you belong to him. You have a new nature, the Spirit's in you. And you belong to him, you're in his hand, and no one can snatch you out of his hand. No one, nothing. Nothing is greater than the Father. Even and I, I know this is taught, even your own decisions and will are not greater than the Father. So there's no qualifier there. Jesus doesn't say, well, well, there's one thing, your own decisions. No, nothing, nothing is greater than the Father. So when he holds you, he holds you and will not let you go. That's clear in Scripture. Very clear. Romans 8 as well makes it clear that for the believer, nothing will separate you from the love of God. Again, nothing and Paul goes into all the possibilities that might separate you. And one of the things he says, neither, he says, I think, neither the present nor the future. So the future for the believer will not separate you from the love of God. That's clear in Scripture. So that, those truths we must receive and allow them to provide comfort and encouragement for us. But alongside those, we must bring another truth that helps, I think, bring it all into focus. For the genuine believer, Scripture teaches, a genuine believer will not continue to live in sin. A genuine believer may sin. David was a genuine believer. Right? Man after a God's own heart. Kind of the, the type of Christ himself. And yet David sinned in adultery and murder. Very serious sins. And God's discipline was very serious. God does... It's never, we're never, grace is never... An excuse and grace is never meaning that God does not discipline us. But David was a genuine believer. But what happened after he was confronted and convicted? He repented. He said, Lord, forgive me. I've sinned against you most of all. And he repented. The genuine believer will not continue in sin. The genuine believer will eventually repent and believe. So they will not continue. First John Chapter 3 captures this truth. It says, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. The genuine believer does not keep on sinning. The genuine believer might sin, and might sin in this grievous way, but will not continue. So Jesus' warning is for those that consider themselves believers. Saying, more or less, guys, this is a serious sin. And if you don't deal with it ruthlessly, 
If you continue in it, I have no comfort for you, only warning of a hell that awaits. And if you continue in this sin, and remember he's talking about adultery of the heart, not just outward physical adultery, but adultery of the heart. If you continue in this, you ultimately have no reason for comfort. He's warning us. He's warning us. He's giving us a stern warning because he's merciful and loving. And he wants us to run from this sin. Run from it to him, to enjoy him and enjoy his kingdom ways and walk with him. So he goes on in this passage teaching us that sin must be dealt with ruthlessly. Ruthlessly. His solution to the danger of adultery is radical. So he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, if the looking with your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better than to lose one of your members and your whole body to be thrown into hell. It's better to tear your eye out and deal with this than to continue in it and find yourself at the end of all things living forever exiled from God's presence. That's what hell is. It's being apart from God's presence. And, and, and that is the worst we could ever have. And with that is all the worst evils we ever could imagine. So to continue in it is to do that. So deal with it ruthlessly. Cut off your hand. Pretty radical, huh? We're going to have uh, some eye-gouging hand-cutting uh, ministry available after church today. It'll be at the front door, and you can just line up. Uh, we've got one guy who's doing the poking, and the other with the cutting. No, we're not going to do that. And that's not what Jesus meant here. Uh, and that would be contrary to Scripture. Our, our bodies are good. They're made of God. And to mutilate our bodies is wrong. That's not at all what he means here. But what he does mean is he, he means for us to understand the seriousness of this sin and how ruthless we must be in dealing with it. It's, he's using exaggeration, or hyperbole as we call it, to emphasize the seriousness of this problem and the severity of the solution. Jesus wants us to know, guys, it is not worth it. Do whatever you must do to deal with this sin, to put it to death, to cut it out of your life. Do whatever you need to, because it is not worth it to forfeit your relationship with God for this thing that, that seems to you to be so valuable. Nothing compares with walking with God and knowing God and being forgiven and enjoying His glory and living for His glory. Nothing compares with that. So don't trade anything for God. Don't trade anything for, for His life and walking in Him and finding our life in Him. Don't trade anything and don't be fooled by the deceptive destruction of the lie of lust. Deal with it. And I would submit that if this is a temptation for us, at the root, there are practices that we need to deal with. And we need to do eye gouging and hand cutting. I'll talk about that in a minute. But at the root is a heart that actually doesn't believe that God is more glorious and satisfying than anything else. Because what motivates looking to lust? Saying that this is life. If I can have her, even just in my mind, even just in my secret fantasy world, or if I can have him in my secret fantasy world, then I'll be satisfied. Then life will be good. Then I will be fulfilled. 
And so it is fundamentally an issue of not believing that God is most glorious. And what you and I need to do is to fill our minds with that truth of the glory of God, to feed ourselves, to remind ourselves, to gaze at the cross, Christ crucified for me, see the glory of God revealed in the cross and in his resurrection, and feed ourselves on that, using the means of grace that God gives us, the word, prayer, uh, the sacraments, God's people, all these things, to feed our souls, to reinforce that he is the sweetest and greatest and most glorious thing we could ever have. And nothing is worth trading for him. So Jesus wants us to be ruthless. So not to gouge out our eyes literally, but to gouge them out spiritually and functionally. To be blind if need be. If we are tempted to look, then we should figuratively gouge out our eyes. We should live as those that don't look. We should imagine ourselves as blind men. Now, being blind doesn't necessarily keep us from doing that, but but if we're not looking, it does deal with the temptation. It lessens the temptation. So live as those who don't look. Cut out your eye in that sense. Stop looking. If you are tempted to look there, don't look there. Put your eyes under a different understanding, a different practice, and cut them out in terms of looking at that. Flee temptation. Be blind to looking to lust. Don't play games. Run. We're told to flee temptation. So if you are in places where you're, you're, you're tempted to look, then don't be in those places. Don't look. Get out of there. Run away. We must deal ruthlessly with this. I remember a story my roommate, one of my roommates told me. He was in college at the time, and, and he, uh, I think he was a member of the band uh, on his college campus. And there was an attractive young lady who he got to know. And she invited him back to her room, and he walked her back. And he's a believer uh, at this point. And I don't think this young lady was a believer. And he walked back to the room with her and, I guess, opened the door. And he went to kiss her. And all of a sudden, this voice said, run. Thank God for that voice. You know what my friend did? He turned around at that very moment and ran down the hall, out of the building, all the way back to his dorm. The whole way, he didn't stop till he got back to his dorm. And that, that young lady probably thought he was crazy. And he was. Because he understood at that moment, thank God, just how ruthlessly he needed to deal with this issue. And it wasn't worth it to, to play around with that sin compared to walking with God. And so for us, we might need to run from those situations. We might need to humble ourselves and acknowledge, you know what, I am weak and I just cannot operate in this context. I cannot get on the internet because it just tempts me. I cannot go to the beach in the summer because it tempts me. If that's the case, that's what Jesus is saying. That's good. Don't be ashamed of that. It is worth it to do what we need to do to deal with it radically. We are to be blind In terms of this, we're to cut off our hands. People who don't have hands have a hard time doing things, don't they? If you didn't have hands, it would be hard to do things. Jesus is saying, functionally, deal with adultery and the the sin of lust and looking to lust the same way. Don't, Don't do things. Don't put yourself in the place where you might do things that are not good and will will tempt you. So deal with things ruthlessly, 
I have a friend who I, I know who, who has a weakness in this area, and, and like many men. And, and he's given into that in the past, so he has actually set up a way where he does not use the Internet without his wife being involved. And he only uses it for email. So he doesn't use the Internet. Can you imagine not using the Internet in our day? That is basically cutting off your hand, isn't it? In a, in a society that's built around the Internet. But this brother is wise. Because his relationship with the Lord and with his wife is more precious to him than those cheap and passing destructive thrills. And so he has been radical. Maybe what you need to do is, is to have somebody who you can talk to, to be radical enough to say to someone who you can trust, look, this is an issue, this is a temptation for me, I need help. I need to have an accountable relationship with you. Uh, we, I've begun using something with my sons uh, on the Internet called X3 Watch. If you could put that up. This is from a ministry that's devoted to dealing with Internet pornography. And it really is just a simple program. You can access it there um, that monitors your Internet use and then sends an email to two accountability partners. And it can, it can keep your name anonymous and stuff, but it sends your, certainly your partners need to know who you are, but it, it sends your Internet activity to two partners who are committed to help you and keep you accountable. Just lets them know any sort of sites that are any, questionable in any way. It doesn't prevent you from going where you shouldn't go. You need to decide that it's not worth it. But when you have gone, it lets someone else know who, who cares about you, who can say, hey, brother, hey, sister, hey, friend, can you help me understand this site here? What were you doing there? Can we talk about it? Can we pray together? So that might be something you need to do to be radical, to deal with this. Maybe you need to do other things. Not going to the beach, as I said. Don't hang around that woman at the office or that guy at the gym. Or don't watch those movies or video games or TV shows. Talk to your dad and mom. Tell your friends. And dads, you must talk to your sons about this. The sooner the better. Once they get into probably fourth grade, I'd say they need to be talked to about this. The sooner the better. Maybe even earlier, depending on what their exposure is. And the more frequently, the wiser. We must assume this is going to be an issue. In our culture today, it's everywhere. And so we must help our children deal with it ruthlessly. Heaven and hell and our very lives are at stake. We must deal with it ruthlessly. And as uh, the band comes up, Mitch, you have a closing song. Thank you so much, Mitch, and the band for serving us with a half team last minute on a day like today. Yeah. As we prepare to close, uh, one important final point, and it's implied here. Jesus doesn't come out with it explicitly in this particular passage. But this resisting of the sin of adultery is not merely stopping certain attitudes and actions, though that is very important. It's not merely that. It must be driven by a lifestyle of pursuing pursuing and enjoying God-centered, superior alternatives. God-centered, superior alternatives. I hope that makes sense. What I mean is the drive to run away from the sin of adultery in our hearts results in certain practices of 
dealing with our eyes and what we do, but it must be driven by pursuing God-centered superior alternatives. We must learn that there is something better than this, something more glorious, something more enjoyable, something more rewarding, something more eternal. And we must see in light of that alternative, the, the godly superior alternative, that this other choice is foolishness. And just not worth it. That's what's going to drive us. And that's the context of Jesus' teaching. He's teaching on the kingdom to Jews who would have known about their God. The Ten Commandments start out with, I am the Lord your God who who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one who has redeemed you. I'm the God who's called you. I'm the one who loves you. I'm the one who did these miracles. I'm your very great reward, Abraham. I am. So don't do these things. Live in me. That's what's going to drive it. That's what's implied as Jesus teaches this. He's teaching to Jews who would have understood that God was their very great reward. So what gives the power to drive this thing is treasuring and delighting in a superior alternative, God himself. He is infinitely more glorious and satisfying, and his ways are much more glorious and, and rewarding than anything we can imagine. And only with him at the center and the object of all our affections do any of the legitimate pleasures of his creation mean anything. Only when he's the center, when he's the source and center of our lives, do things fall in their proper place and mean anything. So we must live in him and in these ways if we are to escape this danger. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly in John 10, 10. And then later in John 17, he says, and this is eternal life. This abundant life, this is it, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. There's nothing more glorious than to know and walk with God and serve his purposes with his people. Nothing compares to it, so don't trade anything for it. And do whatever it takes to preserve your devotion and enjoyment to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your warning to us. In your mercy and in your love for us. And Lord, we ask for your help. We want to make you our joy, our life. We want to depend on you. Forgive us, Lord, for the idolatry of looking to lust. Teach us contentment and satisfaction and enjoying you. Teach us to be wise and deal ruthlessly with this sin. That we might enhance and pursue our enjoyment in you. Find and enjoy that life that is eternal. Lord, I pray for those in our midst who are tempted and struggling in this area. Would you help them? Would you work in their lives? Would you, Lord, give them friends to serve them? Lord, I I ask if you would use me in any way. I want to serve your people that they might be freed from this to enjoy you. Lord, do these things and 